0: Go through that worship and music time to get my heart focused, to get my heart right, to get thoughts aligned in my head. And here's what I know, that if you get into God's presence, if you get into the throne room, and that's the goal of these people who stand up here to lead you in worship, if they can help bring you into God's presence, or maybe I should say it this way, if they help you to realize that God is present, okay, It's not just us going to where he is, some far off place. Help you to come to the realization that God is here and he is listening for our worship. They help you to be aware of that. They help you to understand the reality of that. And this is what I know, that if if you encounter God like Moses or Elijah or Isaiah, if you encounter God, your response is always going to be, God, here I am. Do whatever you please with me. You know, it's hard to come into God's presence and leave unchanged. Frankly, it's impossible. And so, I frankly, from a selfish standpoint, I like these guys getting up here and bringing us into the throne room so that you are humbled in God's presence, so you're amazed by His character. And then it's almost easy for me to come up here, open God's Word and say, "Thus says the Lord. We're ready for it. We're ready for it. There are other times, though, like this morning, that I feel like the passage tells us so much about God tells us so much about the character of God that I think it would help us to go through the passage first and it will inform our worship so that when we stand together to sing, you're going to know a little bit more about this God. Okay? So let's do that. Would you pray with me? Father, we give you this time and uh, normally we're used to settling in, singing a few songs and then getting comfortable in our chairs before we have to sit and listen to the me. Father, but um, this morning we're, we're, we're doing things a little different. So would you help us? Uh, our attentions are being drawn into your word a little sooner this morning. And so, Lord, would you help us settle our hearts and minds? Father, as we open your word and we declare, thus says the Lord, would you speak directly to our hearts? Would you remove everything that is cluttering our minds? Would you settle us here as we gather at your feet? As we come to worship in Your Word and hear directly from You. And as always, Father, our prayer is that where our lives are different from what Your Word says, we will be the ones to change. We will be the ones to change. But we give You this time. We humble ourselves before You to hear from Your Word. In Christ's beautiful name I pray. Amen. Amen. Titus chapter 3. We were here a couple weeks ago and we didn't get to finish, but that's all right because today I'm going to spend a whole lot of time in a few verses here that I wouldn't have been able to uh, the other week. You remember in Titus chapter 3 and in in the whole book, Titus has been playing on this theme to really this church plant on the island of Crete. He's He's been playing on this theme of that our life has to line up with our faith. Our actions and our activity have to line up with what we say What we say, we believe. Okay, And when there's incongruence there from the leadership down, then we have problems. Specifically, we have problems relating to the world. Line up, once again, so that we can accomplish our big goal. We can accomplish the kingdom goals. We can be successful, not in worldly things, but we can be successful in sharing the good news of the God who saved us. And so he says, our life has to line up. lest Our life disqualifies us. Socially, we have to make sure we are in right standing. Let me review here. Verses 1 and 2, here's what he says in Titus chapter 3. Remind them, he says to Titus. He's the church planner sent to the island of Crete to set up leadership and start these new churches. He says, remind them, because this is something Paul has taught many times before. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. And this is as far as we got last time. And I tracked you through each one of these phrases and we kind of, we looked at what, what they really mean. Because verses 1 and 2, we're going to go through verse 8 this morning as one passage. But verses 1 and 2 are the point of the passage. The rest is just going to be his argument. The point of his passage is that in society, in our Monday through Friday life, when people look at us who name the name of Jesus, verse 3 through 7, this is his argument. Verse 3 through 7. By way of review, let me read you something. This is... uh, uh, this guy says it. This commentator says Paul's point here in this whole passage better than I can say it. So I'm just going to read it to you, okay? Listen to this. This is going to take just a second, so concentrate on what he says here because this is, this is very succinct, and I couldn't say it any better than this. In regards to our issue, how do we live in this society when society seems to be going downhill? When government seems to be going downhill, how do we submit? How do we live peaceable? How do we live gentle? How do we not malign? Here's what he says. He says, The many biblical tenets and standards that once were a part of the fabric of our country, speaking of America, and that provided the undeniable cultural benefits of morality are now gone. Whatever its form or practical benefits may have been, cultural Christianity is dead. Self-expression, moral freedom, materialism, hedonism are the prevailing gods. Those gods, as clearly pagan as any Greek or ancient Roman pantheons, have inevitably spawned the epidemic breakdown of families, illegitimate births, sexual evils of all sorts, unequal growth of drug addiction and crime, and the wanton destruction of unborn babies. In the name of intellectual and scientific progress, godless philosophies have long dominated secular as well as much private education. In reaction to among some of them, that's believers, hostility among some of them, has been intensified still further when they learn that their taxes are being used to fund ideas and practices that only a few generations ago were condemned even by most secularists. They fear for the children and even more for their grandchildren because of the kind of world into which they will be born, educated, and have to live. Many well-meaning Christians and Christian leaders have founded organizations to counteract anti-Christian influences and assaults. Attempting to fight fire with fire, as it were, Christian organizations, publishers, and broadcasters have sought to counter anti-Christian ideas and programs by using non-Christian tactics. They have decided it is time to stand up for their rights and have declared war on the prevailing non-Christian culture, especially the liberal national media. They have become hostile to unbelievers, the very ones, don't miss this, the very ones God has called them to love and reach with the gospel. But neither the New Testament nor the example of the early church justifies such mentality. That's what Paul's goal is here. That we wouldn't be embittered, that we wouldn't be angered at what we see is happening in this world. Because that's natural for us. It's natural for us who have now a moral fiber about us because of Christ and because of his righteousness to look at this world and clearly see everything that's gone wrong everything that's gone haywire. Paul, in reaction to that natural tendency that we have, the natural tendency that Christians have always had, the church at Crete, Titus 3, the natural tendency is for us not to be peaceable, for us not to be gentle, for us not to be kind, for us not to be long-suffering or patient. We have a tendency to... Call it war. And draw the line in the sand and say it's us against the world. It's the Christians against the fallen world. And the shame is that those are the ones that we're trying to save out of the darkness. Now, that's his goal. Now he's going to build his argument. Look at verse 3. He starts his argument here. He paints a picture of us. For we also. That's us. Who's the we? That's us. That's the church. That's We who name the name of Christ, we also, we've been talking about the world, we've been talking about these these bad guys out there. Paul turns it and he says, Let's look at ourselves for a second. For we also once were foolish ourselves. Now, when he says once, that doesn't mean that once we were foolish, we did it one time. It's a chronological once. It means before Christ, we were in the same boat. Before Christ, we looked the very same way. And he gives another list here. Look at this. And it is in part what angers us about our fallen world, about our government, about our community, about those in leadership. Because they are fallen and they do tend to look like this. They are deceived. Paul's argument to get us acting rightly towards those who look like this is to say... Don't forget where you came from. That's the theology here. It's the remember where you came from theology. You used to look just the same before Christ. That was you. While this is a picture of them, those very things that frustrate you about this world, they were your identifying marks as well. What is is his argument here? He says, listen... Don't get a big head. Don't think now that you've grown up. Don't think now that you've made it. Don't think now that you're in Christ that you can look back at those who are in the same boat that you were once and think now somehow that you're any better. You were just like that. And so his argument here is an argument of humility. His logic is a logic of humility. How do we get... The church to act rightly towards the outside world when the outside world is flawed and it is fallen and it is obviously wicked, it has obviously got troubles, and it frustrates those who have more. Let me remind you of something. That was you before someone came in and snatched you out of the darkness. That was you. There's a couple movies I was trying to uh, confess. This. uh, this is, a, this is a theme that is played out in plays, music, poems, uh, movies. I love watching movies. I couldn't, for the life of me, I couldn't think of, uh, of good movies. I know they're out there, though, right? And, and I'm going to, you're going to see that, um, uh, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to expose what my life's all about right now. It's about, uh, number one, it's about kids. Because the first movie that came to my mind about, about Paul's argument here is the movie Cars. It's Lightning McQueen, right? You guys have got kids? You don't have like kids, you don't know what I'm talking about. You're like, this guy's wacko. He's watching kids' movies. Lightning McQueen, he thought he, he, he was it. He thought he could do it all himself. He had a big head. And what did he need? He needed someone to come and remind him and say, listen, don't forget where you came from. Don't forget that you got all these other people that have helped you. Don't forget it's not just about you. You can't look down on others. And he was reminded where he came from. The other movie, I'm ashamed to say my manhood's going to be calling the question here. The next movie that came to my mind was Sweet Home Alabama. My wife made me watch it. I'm just kidding. I'm a big Reese Witherspoon fan. Uh, my wife knows that, so you don't have to go and confess that for me. Um, but um, it, you guys have seen Sweet Home Alabama. It, it's a story about this girl who grows up in L.A., lower Alabama, and she moves to New York and she's successful. And I forget who you were once before you got out, before you moved up. Now, here's where the analogy and these stories and any of the movies you can think of, any examples, they tend to break down. It's because at this point, humanly speaking, here's what we say. Well, um, the difference is, yeah, I was once that, but I did something about it. I did something about it and I made something of myself. I made something of myself and now I am different. And that somehow gives them a right to then look back down at those people who although they once looked like them themselves, now, now they've made it. And, and they've made it. They've done it. And so Paul's argument doesn't stop right there. His argument doesn't stop because, humanly speaking, we would have a tendency to say, okay, I, I do remember. I do remember. I was just like that. But you know what? I've done something about it. I've done something about my morality. I'm tired of being deceived. I was tired of being, uh, I was tired of being swayed by the lusts and various uh, pleasures of life. I gave up all that stuff and I put it away and I did something about it. That's our tendency at this point. And so Paul doesn't stop his argument there. He's going to bring us further into humility, true humility. Look at the next verse verse 4 does this quite a bit after giving this list of our depravity you hear him say in the next verse but God but God we were once also just like them all this ugly wretched stuff but God not you but God look at what he says in verse 4 but when the kindness of God, our Savior. It's a reoccurring phrase in the book of Titus, isn't it? We tend to think of Jesus as our Savior. But the heart of God, the heart of the Father, is to save us. God is a Savior. That's His desire for us. But God. Now, the overarching theme here in the next couple of verses, let me go ahead and give it to you, is that He saved us. He saved us. He's going to tell us why He saved us. And He's going to give us three or four reasons why God saved us. And they may surprise you. And He's going to give us one reason why God did not save us. I'll explain that in just a moment. The first reason that God saved us is in verse 4. He says it right there at the beginning. Because of His kindness. His kindness. It's the same word used... In Ephesians 2, flip back to your left. Let me show this to you. Galatians, Ephesians. It should just be a few pages back to your left. Ephesians 2, among them we too, excuse me, all formerly lived in the lusts of the flesh. That's that's the same we once were passage, right? We lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Verse 4, here it is again. But God being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions. Here's that list of our wretchedness. We were dead in our transgressions. He made us alive together with Christ. He did it. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him. And He seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And here's the verse I want you to see. Verse 7. So that in the ages to come, so that the end of all this is the point. In the culmination, verse 7, He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in, what? Kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Sending Jesus. The Father as Savior sending Jesus is an expression of God's kindness. His generosity to humanity that we might see in the final evaluation of who God is, that we might come to, come to the conclusion that this God of all in the universe, He is kind, He is benevolent to us. He saved us, Titus 3. My translation says, love for mankind. In the Greek, that's one word. And if I say the word, you're going to know what English word we get from it, and you're going to understand what Paul means here a little better. That love for mankind, it's this word in the Greek. Philanthropia. Philanthropia. Now, what English word do we get from that? Philanthropist. Why does God save us? Because he's a kind, benevolent God, number one. Number two, Paul says, he saves us because he is the ultimate philanthropist. Do you know what a philanthropist is? A philanthropist is one who looks into the world... And he sees hurt, pain, danger. And he has compassion on those situations and on those individuals. But it doesn't stop there. He acts on his compassion. A philanthropist is one who does something about the hurt, the pain, and the danger that the individuals are in. And we honor people for doing that. Listen to what dictionary.com says a philanthropist is. Philanthropy is an altruistic concern for human welfare and advancement, usually manifested by donations of money, property, or work to needy persons. Who are the needy persons? We are the needy persons. The heart of God as Savior is that He is kind and He is, benevolent. He is the ultimate philanthropist. Keep going here. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done. So the overarching theme, He saved us. Why did He save us? He saved us because He's kind. He saved us because of His love for mankind. That's His heart. That's who He is. By His nature, He's benevolent. Now He says, let me tell you why God didn't save you. He did not save you because of any deeds that you have done. Meaning, that it had nothing to do, your salvation had nothing to do with God looking at you and saying, you know what, this guy deserves. This guy deserves heaven. None of us would make it. None of us would make it. But he says something else there. Did you catch it? I skipped it. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done. We know that. I mean, most of us who have been in church, we, we, we get that. It's not about what I have done. But he goes even further. He says, it's not according to the deeds we have done even in righteousness. Now, let me tell you what that means by telling you what it doesn't mean. He's not excluding us from salvation based on the fact that we have... Uh, based on our worst deeds, okay? Your best actions do not cause a holy God to look down upon your life and say that we deserve mercy or salvation. Do you get that? That's freeing. It's humbling, but it's freeing. Not even on your best day does God look at us and say, you know what? That guy's a pretty good old boy. I think maybe I'll cut him a break. Why does God save us? Not because of anything we've done, even on our best day. He saves us because He's kind. He saves us because He's the ultimate philanthropist. He looks at our plight and has pity upon us. Look at what else He says. Not according to our deeds, verse 4. Verse five. But it is according to his mercy. His mercy. Same word used in Romans nine sixteen. It's not according to man who wills or man who runs. It's a picture of a guy who is concentrating that somehow he will will himself to God. Somehow he will will himself to righteousness. It's not according to a man who runs. It's a picture of a guy who will work as hard as he has to work, who will do everything he has to do, who will run the race as hard as he can run the race, who will lean out over the finish line. It has nothing to do with your effort. not according to man who wills or man who runs. It's only according to his mercy. Now, I don't have time to keep going here in detail, and I don't think I need to because I think Paul, uh, for the sake of context here, I think he just, I think he just... Wells up in worship. And I think by the time he gets to the next verse, he's just, he's just overflowing in the goodness of God right here. But look what he says. Verse 5. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. Here's how he does it. That's why he's done it. Here's how he does it. By the washing of regeneration and by the renewing that comes by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly. Extravagance here. God does not slight us. It's not in doses. He pours it out richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Do you notice the book ends here? Verse 4, God is our Savior. Verse 6, Christ our Savior, the Holy Spirit working in the midst. Verse 7, so that being justified by whose grace? His grace. We would make, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Let me tell you something interesting about that word heirs, because I don't think he uses it. I don't think he uses it uh, unintentionally. If you're an heir, what an heir is is someone who gets something from someone else that they didn't necessarily earn or deserve. Right? If your parents uh, passed, Paul says we're heirs. We don't earn it. We don't do anything. Being born again in Christ makes us heirs, joint heirs with Jesus. And we get this eternal life. We have this hope for everlasting life. It all comes from him. All right, now let me wrap this up because I've spent a lot of time on this. But remember, this isn't his point. This is his logical argument to make his point. Look at the last verse here in this passage. Verse 8. This is a trustworthy statement. He's wrapping it up here for us. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently. He's speaking specifically to Titus, who's leading these these new churches. What are these things that he's talking about? It's verse 1 and 2. These are the things that we should be doing, not doing. This is what we should look like in relation to society. This is the goal. This is the point of the passage. He gave his argument. Now he says in verse 8, this is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that, and here's the reason, so that those who have believed that's the we also once who look the same. That's us, the church. We who have believed, look at what he wants out of us. We will be careful. We will be careful. We'll be careful in this life how we live. Specifically, he says, we'll be careful to engage we don't like our uh, neighborhood HOA. We don't like the PTA. Uh, everybody's messed up. Everybody's flawed. Uh, and we sometimes sit back and have, have this, this, this feeling that uh, it's us against the world. And Paul says, I understand that. It makes sense. But he says, listen, don't forget. Number one, you were once just like that. Without Christ, you look just like them. You may have actually been worse Humble yourself, number one, knowing that you, you were the same way. Number two, you didn't get yourself out of that state. You didn't fix yourself. God fixed you. It was his kindness. It was his love for humanity. It were, was not your deeds, even on your best day. It was His mercy, and it was His grace through the Holy Spirit, through the appearing of God, the Son. He did it all from beginning to end. How could you get a big head? That's the point. All that preaching. For us who read, and the men and women who read this book, at the time he wrote it, to come to the end of this and say, you know what? I'm just lucky I got out of that. I'm lucky somebody told me about this God. I'm lucky somebody gave me the good news. I'm just lucky. Not bitterness but evangelism. In the end our response should be, you know what? I got to take this light. I got to take this news that brought me out of darkness and that's what I'm going to give to this world. That is going downhill. That should be our response, church. Not to be rebellious. Not to be unkind not to be mean-spirited, not to draw petitions, not to do sit-ins, not to try and change our world socially to put this wallpaper, to put a veneer on our world of Christianity when underneath it's still sinful. Our goal should be to go to the heart of the matter. Our goal should be to see the big picture of all eternity. That having a more Christianized society does us no good because this is all going to come to an end one day. We understand something. We understand that we're just in this parentheses where God is being patient towards us. Not desiring that any of us should perish. But that some of us might come to repentance. That we might get saved in this meantime. One day God is going to draw this thing to an end. He's going to blow the whistle and say, time's up. It's not about making this life our best life it can be. It's not about even making it better for our kids. So what do we do? You do the best you can in this life. I want the world to be better for my kids, but here's what I know. Big picture, I've got a word that tells me what's coming, and I know it's not getting better. Where I can make it better, I'll make it better. But I'm not going to spend my life in war against this world that is going downhill. I'm going to say, here's, how, here's the best thing I can do for you. The best thing I can do for you is introduce you to the God who saved me. And now look at this big picture. It's not just about materialism. It's not just about making this world better for your kids. It's not just about philanthropy for the sake of philanthropy. It's about the kingdom. Um, How you doing right there? How you doing right there? Are you waging war against the world? The very ones who God has called us to be gracious and merciful to. When we do that, as individuals, as churches, as denominations, when we do that, we put up walls. And then there are walls that we have to climb back over when we try and share the real news, the good news. Well, gone too long. Let me pray.